welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me. And guess what? We have a guest today. How excited are you? Uh, we have my friend who I call Dr. Mallory here. She's been a paramedic for 12 years, and she just finished her first year of osteopathic med medical school. Yep. Um, how's it going, Mallory? Oh, it's it's going. It's uh, just at the just finished that first year, so still kind of recovering. You're spinning, from, yeah. Still trying to slow down my brain a little bit yeah. from that experience. Yeah, and then good. you'll start second year, and you'll be back to it. Right back to spinning as fast as I possibly can. Yes. Um, so what we are going to talk to people about today is harm reduction, which not only is like a personal interest of yours, mm -hmm. but I think it's something that you have frontline experience with because as a paramedic, you are dealing with people in medical crisis. Oh yeah. So, um, I don't know. Should we start with defining what harm reduction is? Yeah. Um, I think that's probably a good spot because I feel like <laughs> even like up until recently, um, as a paramedic for as long as I've been and then like doing my first year of med school, I had never even heard of harm reduction, what harm reduction is, what it does for the community until I was like halfway through with my first year of med school and we actually did like a class on it, watched some movies about it, um, got exposed to that. I am now part of the harm reduction club at school, so I help with that. Um, I haven't done anything super actively because I'm also part of like emergency medicine, all the other things. Um, but they have done um, some naloxone trainings for students and having uh, giving them options to uh, access naloxone and learn how to use it. So there's some pretty cool stuff. But that was stuff I didn't know even working in healthcare in the situations I've been in for as long as I've been doing it, had no idea what it was. Well, so, I, think, I think it's important. People. <laughs> I, I, well, and I think a lot of like the way our Western medicine works is we it's reaction versus prevention. Correct. And so it's so silly that you go, oh, our, our ERs are overwhelmed with things. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can nip this in the bud before people get to the ER. Yeah. Like maybe we can make cars safer so people aren't, you know, dying yeah. in them or, you know, needing emergency treatment. That sort of, we'll have traffic controls. Right. And then, like, yeah, let's wear seatbelts, but also here's all the opioids you can swallow. Yeah. It doesn't totally make a ton of sense. No. Um, and so as a paramedic, let's talk about your experience, uh, I guess, kind of on the front lines of dealing with addicts, because you do deal mm -hmm. with people who are having drug overdoses. I, I drug assume you've seen plenty of methinduced psychosis, psychoses, psychoses. Um, yeah, act active intoxication, post intoxication. It's a lot of those things. Um, so the interesting part of that is harm reduction is to my knowledge not even talked about or known about in the EMS world the emergency medical services like ambulance world of things um which is something that I'm now feeling really passionate about especially now that I'm in medical school I will be a physician someday and I've had this first line like frontline experience um that is like those people are going to see first responders more sometimes than they even see the ER. Mm -hmm. Some of those people will take too much of an opioid and get their naloxone and they don't want to go to the hospital. Then they're awake, they're alert, they can answer the questions, we can't force them to go. So sometimes they don't get past us. Um, oops, sorry. No, you're fine. Um, and so I think harm reduction needs to start being exposed into that first line because you are day in, day out, I will say, there's a lot of calls I've run. I've been on an ambulance since... 2007 it's been 15 years of woo yeah PTSD. that's a lot <laughs> 15 years of PTSD um 
But yeah, we see those uh, more commonly than not, I would say something that involves drugs or alcohol was something I was responding to. We do obviously have like the heart attacks and the diabetics, but even those sometimes are slowly compounded, compounded and interwoven into some sort of a substance abuse situation on top of it. So I would almost venture to say, like, obviously I don't have, like, math. I haven't done the statistics on it. But, like, I'd say, like, a good 60% of my calls that I've done in the last many years at some level have a substance abuse factor to them. That, I mean, that makes sense to mm-hmm. me. Um, and, and basically, how, how should I say this? Um, in, in our society, like, we don't want to acknowledge that people abuse drugs. Correct. Which is so crazy. Mm-hmm. Like... It's so crazy to me because people do drugs. It's just what Absolutely. they do. And and we'll get into the reasons mm-hmm. why people become addicts. Um, and so what harm reduction would look like would be acknowledging mm-hmm. that there are drugs out there. Um, I guess a, an example that everyone knows about is needle exchanges. Yes. Which is so great, right? We have AIDS. We have hep C. Mm-hmm. Let's give people clean needles so they aren't sharing diseases. And now we have someone who's not only drug addicted, Correct. but they also have this... Um, virus that is lethal. You know what I mean? Um, And there are people who even fight back against that. Yeah, they say that it's enabling them and not doing anything to fix the problem. But there was a statistic I did actually look up and can verify that when harm reduction and those needle exchange programs or the safe injection spots or the wet houses, which is um, like group homes for alcoholics that actually allow them to drink while they're there. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're called wet houses. They actually end up Um, I believe the statistic was 30% of the time when someone gets involved with that, they never use again. They can actually get clean because they're in a safe, supported environment and they're able to do things in a safe, protected manner. And it actually, it improves the situation. Um, So all the people that it's enabling you, it might at a time, and for some people it is ultimately just going to kind of give them that space to do it. Um, But there are there are people that come out of that and with that support system and that ability to stay safe and supported are able to completely get clean. Um, yeah, the, the American model of addiction recovery has to do with focusing on abstinence from the substance and then we end up, we socially isolate them, we mm-hmm. encourage their families to cut them off, mm-hmm. we criminal, we, you know, they, they get criminal records, they can't get jobs, they become further isolated, which increases drug use. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of counterintuitive where you're like, okay, so this person abuses drugs and then our entire system increases the factors that lead to drug abuse. Yeah. And I th- one of the studies that's quoted all the time is about the um, soldiers in Vietnam and there, there was, I guess, a lot of heroin over there, a lot of opiates. And so a lot of soldiers became physically addicted to mm-hmm. it while they were over there. But the majority of them quit when they came home. Yeah. Only the ones who didn't have families or support systems when they came home continued to use. Yeah. And so when people talk about like, oh, it's this, it's this horribly chemically addicting drug, it's not just that. Mm-hmm. Because people can detox from it and then why do they relapse because and opiates have have a yeah they don't have support they don't have a safe home they don't have like i think one of the movies or one of the links i had sent you before we sent this up there's a lady who says addiction is the drug of disconnection yes and when you disconnect and then you try to treat it by disconnecting them more just like you said and that's not 
entirely helpful. And we saw that during lockdown when mm-hmm. drug and alcohol abuse skyrocketed. And suicides and overdoses and just everything. Yeah. Like the use, the overdosing of it, the using it to kill yourself. Like, when you isolate people, they don't have support systems. They don't want to... They don't want to live. They don't want it to be their reality, and so they'll do what it takes to escape that as their reality. Yeah, which in case you've never had opiates, which Mm -hmm. if listen, if you've ever been to a doctor in America, you've probably had opiates once or twice. But they make you feel like you're being hugged. I mean, they feel like your mom is Mm -hmm. cradling you. They are. They also make you feel nauseous and weird and constipated. Yeah, I mean, there's other factors. That's really where the buck stops. (laughs) Anything that fucks up my poop shoot, I draw the (laughs) line. We're done here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I'd totally be a junkie. It's just I really love shitting. Yeah, Um, I really like when my GI system's regular. that's honestly I'm a very grumpy person when it's not that is a hundred percent true like that is the root of my like mood um it's got to go out or things are messed up yeah or things are just uh, the balance of the universe is off um but um so let's talk about like what a wet house is because and in sorry my my mind works faster than my mouth sometimes we live in a city currently, Phoenix, where we have a huge homeless population, mm-hmm. a huge homeless popu- population, which is not fun for the homeless people, and it's not Especially fun. Especially in this weather. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hot. It's deadly. As, it's not yeah. even not fun. It can kill them. Yeah, and and literally, like, I, I had a job downtown, and I would watch the firemen go down the street mm-hmm. and shake the sleeping people to see if they were alive, mm. and if they were alive, they'd be like, okay, you have to walk away. It's not like, oh, let's get you into a place with air conditioning or services. It's like, get up and walk. I could spiral. I could get onto my soapbox about that stuff, but yeah. I, I, I will It's not. It's just unbelievable. So you're like, okay, it's bad for those people. Mm-hmm. It's also unpleasant for the re- – like, I don't like living mm-hmm. in a place surrounded by homeless people. I don't like seeing people shoot up outside mm-hmm. of Walgreens. I don't like people on meth trying to jump in my car. Like, all oh, of yeah. it feels really unsafe to me. However, a lot of public housing for homeless people comes with the rule that they cannot use. Correct. And it is very, especially in those early stages, if, if you are unhoused and you're, you are, even if you really want to reintegrate into society, to have to quit cold turkey and you're living in a shelter, which mm-hmm. people say shelters, it's just, it's a gymnasium full of cots, mm-hmm. a lot of them. Yeah. And they're like, if yeah. that, if you're lucky, yeah. honestly. And, and they're like, I can't is. sleep in that unless I'm high. How the fuck am I supposed to fall asleep? Yeah. There's people screaming. I can barely fall asleep in my nice air conditioned home without some sort of substance sometimes. Exactly. Some Unisom or some Benadryl. <laughs> this, like. So, so I've always said like, we need to have places where people can go. Mm-hmm. So they have a roof over their head. They aren't dying of heat stroke like it looks like a third world country in a lot of areas i'm sure los angeles people have seen san francisco mm-hmm. phoenix seattle. seattle phoenix is very similar yeah. and you're like okay how are we a developed nation so it's like we don't i don't want these people dying on the street no um i also don't want to have to step over them to get my mail yeah. so i don't really give a fuck if they do drugs can yeah we, can we please we've got a million empty malls can we put them in there can we have nurses with clean needles mm-hmm. like just, you know, you have you have people to make sure that there's no violence or assault. Yeah. Change the needles but again, and, and encourage them. The basis of violence and assault a lot of the times is the lack of housing or money or yeah. resources because they need food or they need something. And 
if those are supplied, the incidences of violence and stuff can also be Yeah, so let's protected. dorm them up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have some, you have some medical people, medical mm -hmm. staff who are like the resident advisor, and this is like a college dorm. And, and you know, you can encourage them to do things like hygiene mm -hmm. and then have resume assistance. Let's yeah. fucking do this. Yeah. Let's fucking do this. Round them up, get them in there. I don't care if they do drugs. Let's try to make their lives better and my life better. Yeah. Because I know what I pay for rent and I know what I pay in taxes. And it's a lot to have to deal with someone waving a brick at me at a red light. Right. So like <laughs> I drive just, up, lock your door. <laughs> it's why I don't, I really, really do not understand the sort of viewpoint of let's ignore these people where I'm like, listen, they might, they might, they're not going to become the CEO of Nabisco, okay? That's not their life trajectory. But we might be able to get them to be a functioning adult. You know what I yeah. mean? We might be able to get them into the workforce. We certainly can create a community for them. Absolutely. Um, and we can prevent the spread of disease. You know what I mean? And we keep needles. I've lived in a neighborhood in Phoenix where I had to step over heroin needles oh, walking yeah. my dog. Growing up in Northern California, we had, this, we had, we had a park that they finally had to... Uh, gate off in the last couple of years because the the homeless population and not even just the population but the amount of needles and broken bottles and things that could hurt someone were increasing so much that they just finally like gated off the whole park for the whole community like yeah, so now like loses. the baseball park isn't open and like the little you know playground for the kids no one can access anymore the public restrooms that were in that park are no longer accessible and how do I yeah it's not really helping it's just putting a band-aid on something loses. they all just move to another spot it's not gonna yeah. stop them from reproducing more paraphernalia somewhere else yeah so if like we don't if we don't address addiction everybody loses totally and so the idea of and and it's moralizing mm -hmm. that all that's all it is is saying like oh in order to deserve a roof over your head you can't do drugs right and like i'm sorry because i'm a bartender and literally addicts pay my bills mm -hmm. and these are people who are like because <laughs> I don't sort of, <laughs> ma'am I'm there a lot but um, that's how I met Mallory exactly. guys but like I, I have people who come in every single day and I have people who come in shaking and it's not till yeah. their third drink that they stop shaking but somehow they're more deserving citizens because number one they're addicted to a legal drug mm -hmm. and number two they're able to hold down a, they have a job and a roof over their yeah. head and and I do not see the difference between, quote unquote, street drugs and alcohol. Alcohol is an ugly fucking drug. It does ugly things it does, to people. It does horrible things to your body. And it's one of the few things that you will die from if you go cold turkey. Yeah. Heroin, I, opioids, you'll feel like crap. You will shake. You will probably, like, poop your pants. You'll <laughs> feel like it is... The, the world is ending, but you're probably not going to die from Withdrawal. withdrawing from an opioid. Withdrawing from alcohol will absolutely kill you. It, and, but yet it's like, it's okay. And I've, I, you know, I've been a bartender for 20 years. So I've put so many patients in the ground from mm -hmm. liver failure, kidney failure, diabetic shock. Mm -hmm. Like it is crazy how many people I have watched that mm -hmm. I've put in the ground because of their alcoholism. Yeah. And yet like they get a pass as addicts because alcohol is okay but then yeah. street drugs it's like nope you're now unemployable and you live outside mm -hmm. um and so i so anyways that's all to circle back to <laughs> the importance of having um wet houses and mm -hmm. and um what was the other one you said there's safe injection spots mm -hmm. um and then some of the harm reduction pro uh products harm reduction like areas in like southern california actually have houses for 
like little group home situation. And that's what I want. Group right. home them up. And they do that yeah. at, in in Nordic countries. It's exactly like you were just saying. They have access to showers and hygiene and someone that can help them, you know, with a resume or, you know, clean them up and teach them how to interview with someone or get off the streets. And that's where that statistics of sometimes 30% of those people don't ever go back to using because they finally find a way to be productive. Because their life gets better. They're not better. trying to escape anything anymore. Yeah. You're not trying to escape the fact that you don't have a house or you don't have a family or nobody loves you or you think that everything sucks. And that you're irre- Why would you you're want irredeemable. to face that? Like, why would you want to be sober and face that? Yeah, you wouldn't. And yeah. so that sort of thing that it's like, you're a lost cause, you're irredeemable, you're undeserved, mm-hmm. you're other. And I, I just, and I'm, and, and also as someone who is like, I'm a suburban bitch at heart. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't like living in a city with like unhoused people on every corner. And I'm like, I, I would rather, listen, if I'm going to have to ride the bus, I'd rather the person who's nodding off from heroin next to me be showered mm-hmm. and not have hep C. Yeah. That would be actually better for, for yeah. all of us. You know, I don't give a fuck if you're high. Yeah. But it like, yeah, guess what? You're going to be a lot more pleasant to be around if you have like friends and family, you're socially integrated yeah. and you have hygiene. And yeah. then you, once you get in the workforce, Ain't nobody got time to be high all day because you work it. Yeah. Like, and, and I mean, so- ultimately, it goes down to that is kind of the whole point of harm reduction. It's not just a people can use safely. It's a public health issue. Harm reduction is based in the, the thought process of public health. If you can stop people from getting sicker because their hygiene sucks and getting, like, hep C and HIV because they're using bad needles, that's it becomes a bigger, it, like, it's the throwing a little pebble in a, pond and seeing those ripples those ripples will go on Mm -hmm. that one person who doesn't get hiv because they have a safe place that's one less person who's now using the medicals like that little pebble and that little ripple can make a huge difference in the public in general well and that's an interesting thing because i and I i can't remember if i found statistics on this but like for the amount of money you invest in harm reduction, I'm sure there's actually mm-hmm. savings on the back end of the <laughs> I system. I, I had it somewhere. I, um, I could find it. Because I think, I, oh, you know what? Yesterday I was reading about fluoridation, and it's like for every dollar spent on fluoridating water, it saves $38 in dental care. Mm-hmm. Um, take that, people who are scared of fluoride. It's, it's very, very safe. <laughs> yeah, um, it's fine. It's been very good for us. Uh, but yeah, so if you invest these communities who it's moralization, we, we still live in a purity culture, which Mm -hmm. is like, it's a thing. And so these people who fight and say, well, we don't, we don't want homeless shelters in our neighborhoods. We certainly don't want a a wet house where, where people can be housed for free. They get a free house and they can do drugs in there. It's like, okay, well for every dollar of tax money that goes to that, it could be saving Five ten dollars in yeah, you the guys hospital are all fine system. With the frat houses where the rich white boys are getting shit faced all the time, and they'll be fine. That's fine. That's fine in our neighborhoods. But like the homeless people is where we draw the line. It's like mm, I'm more scared of that frat boy than I am of that homeless man. Yeah. The well, that is true. <laughs> I'm just gonna say <laughs> full trans full transparency. I'm much more scared of a drunk frat boy than I am of a homeless man who's <laughs> just shot up heroin. That is a hundred percent true. Um, the so you sent me a clip from John Oliver about yes. 
harm reduction and they showed a um what was it like a safe injection mm-hmm. site where yep. people would go and it looked like a hospital they had curtains and they could go they could get their drugs tested mm-hmm. before using mm-hmm. them and they could use drugs while being monitored by medical professionals yep. and he said to this day no one has ever yes. died in a safe injection site which is crazy because overdose deaths are through the fucking roof mm-hmm. And especially conservatives like to talk about how, you know, twice as many people died from fentanyl during the during 2020 yeah. than they did from COVID. And you're like, well, you know what? If we put if we if they were doing drugs in these safe injection sites with their drugs, if they lived in a state where drug yeah. testing kits were yeah. free and readily available, those deaths are preventable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those are extremely preventable. It's actually probably easier to prevent a fentanyl overdose than it is a COVID death. Oh, my gosh. It's 100%. (laughs) It is. I I will 100% validate that it is 100% reversible. An opioid or fentanyl overdose can be fixed. Like, boom. And it's... So, yeah. uh, And it's not like those places (laughs) are selling the drugs. They aren't dealer centers. No. Also, I wouldn't give a fuck if they were, because I am a legal drug dealer for a living. Yeah. So, like, if people were able to... And then you would know what you're taking isn't tainted with something weird or, you know, then that's where the big issue is right now, especially with, I think, the stuff that's happening in Phoenix and Maricopa County in general um, from, like, my ambulance stuff. Um, is people are buying what they think is fentanyl. They want that high. They want the opioid warm hug. They want that, you know, that feeling. And that's what they're trying to buy. And then they buy this pill that they're told is fentanyl. And it's, you know, a little bit of fentanyl mixed with, you know, PCP or Molly or something. And then they get something that they didn't want. They're not prepared for it. You know, if you're thinking, like, if you pick up, you know, a beer and you think it's going to be, you know, a beer and then you swig it and it's orange juice. Like that's, you're not prepared for it. You Mm -hmm. know, like it's a weird metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? But yeah. Like if you're like, Oh, I'm going to go get my narcotic high. I'm going to feel my warm hug and my narc itches. And I'm going to sit there with my blanket and like, here we go. And the next thing you know, you're seeing dragons on your wall because you're hallucinating from whatever it was mixed with. That is a problem. Like that's going to cause them to have those psychotic episodes. It's going to cause them to feel crazier. That's where they're going to end up in the ER because they don't know what's happening to them. Well, and the staff is going to yeah. struggle to And they're going to be assholes to them. Well, and, and the staff won't know what they're on because mm-hmm. it's like, right. well, well, I thought I was taking fentanyl. Yeah. If I thought I was drinking, everyone knows I'm a caffeine addict. Mm-hmm. If I thought I was drinking an energy drink and it was a THC soda, when I, when totally that, different. Totally when different. that starts kicking in, it's going to throw me for a fucking loop. Oh, yeah. And let's say I have like a panic attack and I go to the hospital, they go, what'd you take? And I go, an energy drink. Well, that it's going to leave well, your Well, your thing came back positive for THC. So what did you well, actually and, drink? And, then there's and a that's go- the attitude that'll follow yeah. it. Like, no, I really was meaning to drink an energy drink. Well, why your, that's not what your talk shows. And there's a delay in treatment mm-hmm. while they run a tox. Mm-hmm. And so, um, on the show, because like, you know, I've done episodes on LSD and mm-hmm. MDMA, which I think are really powerful therapeutic drugs, Absolutely. but I have done neither one of them because I cannot, I won't do a street drug because they, I think it said like 50% of pills sold as MDMA don't contain any MDMA at all. Yeah. And so then the other 50% have some MDMA, but it's mixed with stuff, which again, yep. you don't know what's going in your body. So again, I, which goes back to those places, the safe injection or safe use spots where you can go and be like, Hey, I bought this cause I want a fentanyl high. 
And then you test it and they're like, oh, this is PCP. Like, okay, well, good. I didn't want PCP. And then you can probably exchange that for something you wanted. Like, yeah. well, at least get, we get the PCP off the street and you're not having a panic attack trying to stab someone. On the street, walking into a circle. Cave. Yeah. Yeah, stabbing someone, which Getting is like. Getting shot because you're carrying a rock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the the safe injection site that they showed on that special, it it did make me think a lot about what I do for a living. The only difference is that I also provide the substance, but I monitor people while they're getting intoxicated. I'm responsible for cutting them off. Mm -hmm. And like, if I don't cut people off, like if someone leaves my bar and they get in a car accident. That's on you kind of. Yeah, no, I can can be legally prosecuted. So like I have to monitor monitor people's legal level, like their levels of intoxication. I have to make sure that they get in a rideshare service. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've carried people into cabs. I gave this one horrible bitch a ride home because she wouldn't get in an Uber. She it was, was me, guys. I'm no, sorry. It wasn't, I'm just kidding. It wasn't Mallory. It was this horrible, <laughs> awful. She's like, I won't get in an Uber. Like, my friends have been raped in Ubers. And she's like trying to get in her car and then hiding her keys in her bra Ugh. and being like, you can't get them because that's sexual assault. It, she was awful, Mallory. She was awful. So then I had to be like, listen, bitch. I'm not, uh, if you sit the fuck down, I will give you a ride home after I count my drawer because I don't want to rape you. I don't even fucking like you. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to look at you. I, Uber, Uber drivers are rapists. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not going to fucking rape you because you're the fucking worst. Yeah, and she, drunk drivers are murderers, so. Yeah. Mm. yeah, she's awful, awful. Anyways, so like I am responsible for yeah. monitoring people while they are Has inebriated. anyone died in your bar? No, they, yeah, I wanted see, to kill an, them. There's another spot no one's died in, you no know? Like, yeah. You've got your safe injection spots on your bar. And so that's where the moralizing really confuses me because, like, it does, why why is what I do for a living okay? Yeah. And, but communities don't want to create these safe spaces. And why is it different for someone who's, like, in Hollywood to go do a bunch of fancy drugs and they're fine and it, they're just partying. They, they just look so cool and they just party. But, like you know, Uncle Bill, who has had a problem because, you know, he was traumatized as a child, can't get a job, uh, his his coke problems and his meth issues, like, you, But, yeah. like, when Johnny Depp does a jar of cocaine, it's like, oh, well, you know, that, that, that's Hollywood for you. Do not even get me started. I know, I know, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't. People but like, defending him <laughs> drive <don't>. me fucking <laughs> nuts. And the fact that people care so much about it is crazy to me. But um, also, I'm like, no, he is an active addict. Mm-hmm. He is clearly a, an extremely active addict. Yeah. Who, who has not dealt with an addict in their lives? They are erratic and they are awful. And yeah. I do get people writing, like, you speak really poorly about addicts. Well, guess what, motherfuckers? It's because I'm a recovering addict. <laughs> <laughs> so I know the yeah. fucking drill. Yeah. And so, like, yeah. He, I grew up in a home full of addiction, so. Yeah. So, like, you know. And so it's like, but, yeah, he is he is this, like, hero, and he's this person who's been, um, you know, wrongly accused and blah, 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 and he's this saint, apparently. I think we can both figure that they both suck. They both suck. Yeah, get, you know what they are? They're crackheads. There was a season of... With inter- money. They're crackheads yeah. with money. There was a season of intervention um, where it focused on this area of Philly called the heroin triangle, and it had all these different addicts, and then, like, halfway through the season, you realize how their stories intersect, mm-hmm. but there was a couple named Billy and... Oh, fuck. I'm gonna forget. Anyways... Zach, my ex, and I loved them because mm-hmm. there's something we were we're both sober people, and so living vicariously through addict couples was kind of fun. Because be, listen, 
being two sober people in a relationship is really fucking boring. It just is. <laughs> it just is. Valid. Being two addicts in a relationship is a whirlwind. It's chaos. It is so, there is so, it is action packed. And so when I think about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, I think about this couple on intervention and they are the same. They are the exact same. The only difference is the couple on intervention lived out of their car and Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are millionaires. Yeah. And so somehow they're okay. Yeah. Because they stumbled into careers where they have the money. The free pass to be addicts, almost. It's like money makes it okay. Well, because you have a cu- yeah, you have a cushion. Oops, sorry, I knocked my mic, friends. Um, you have a cushion around you yeah. that protects you from the fallout of your drug abuse. Because if you are living paycheck to paycheck, you cannot... <laughs> miss war- if you do drugs and you miss work you lose your job yeah, and now you're homeless mm-hmm. if you uh, don't have to work you maybe shoot a movie two months out of every year you can just be drunk hungover high it doesn't matter because so there there aren't the repercussions for your actions that right. there are for working class addicts who yeah. then become you know homeless or in poverty because of their addiction but there you there is no difference between the person it's just yeah. someone has a much better bigger safety yeah. net I mean, it all ultimately boils down to something happened at some point to you somewhere. All of us somewhere were like, you know, you don't want to deal with it and things happen because of it. But I think one of the big things that I'm a huge fan of teaching, like the EMTs that I work with are some of the students that I am in school with now that maybe like don't have a ton of medical experience is an addict is still a person. It's still, they're still human, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, I think you've got to remember that even someone like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, they were still children at some point that might have had something happen to them that even though they did stumble into the cool parts of having money in a career, obviously something happened to both of them yeah. at some point that turned them into whatever they are now, um, which still kind of circles back to harm reduction, is they're people. Yeah. That is still someone, that is still a human being that experiences and thought processes and things. Um and teaching, or not necessarily teaching, but, like, treating someone like a human and the idea of harm reduction or even just something like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, like, realizing that they're humans and they're people and they might need help actually goes a lot further. Well, yeah. It's, than it, automatically being like, you're just gross and I don't want to talk to you and, uh, like, do I want to hang out with them? I mean, I'd no. probably, I would probably let Johnny Depp play guitar for me or something. Ugh. But, like, I know. I mean, he's still hot. But I'm sorry. His fingernails are so dirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you if have dirty fingernails, I can't be attracted to you because okay. I want you to finger me and not with those hands. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't think Captain Jack Sparrow is top of my list mm-hmm. of that situation. Um, but, yeah, there's still people. It's still something. Well, know? and it's weird that, like, high-level addicts, you know, in... In the, uh, in the higher echelon of society, they all go to $43,000 a month um, promises in Malibu. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if, you know, people who are in the top 1% that they have an addict in their family, they have sources like that. Yeah. But then... A swanky, fancy resort-style rehab center? Cool. Yeah. On the ocean side? Must be nice. Um, but, yeah, other people, it's like, go fuck yourself. I remember... Um, 
you know, not to bring everything back to endometriosis, but like, <laughs> but it, here, but here we are, but it's my whole yeah. life, but like, it's a disease that is very, very expensive to treat and mm-hmm. manage just due to the insurance systems in America. It's cause you're a woman and heaven forbid they want to treat. Yeah. And they don't care about it. Anyway. <laughs> um, but it, when I was struggling to be like, my insurance won't cover this $45,000 surgery Ugh. and like, even after my whole insurance hustle, it cost me $8,500, which is an insane amount of money. And I am so fortunate to have been able to pay that. Otherwise, I would be disabled. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense to me that the amount of money that you have should dictate the outcome of your life. So if you're wealthy, you can be an addict and it, it's okay. People will protect you. People yeah. will get you treatment. If you are poor and you're an addict, go fuck yourself. Yeah. You are no longer human to us. Yeah. And so I just, um, I, I think it's it's unfair. And It is. I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you kind of look at it like a rich person or, you know, a Hollywood celebrity that has access to things like, you know, promises in Malibu and... Honestly, even just the money to buy a case of needles that are fresh. Yes. You know, like, they, if they're going to use or they're going to smoke, like, they have the money to get the pure stuff. They have the money to know, if I buy this, this is straight fentanyl because I, you know, have the money to pay for straight fentanyl. So they can go do the same thing. So they technically are just paying for their own needle exchange and their own mm-hmm. safe spot and their own whatever. Well, yeah, they, they just have the money, so they're okay. But like the have... poor person who wants to have the access to the clean needles, the, oh, how dare they? How dare they feel so entitled that they think that they can get a, you know, go somewhere and, and get free needles for, you know, exchanging out their dirty ones and not leaving them in a park. But a Hollywood celebrity, like, they're okay to do it. Like it just well, and that's a good point because a lot of them have doctors. Yeah, they like have concierge doctors. People remember? that are watching them over, like if they are at a somewhere, they've got a bodyguard or they've got someone who's gonna know if you're. I mean, obviously there are several stories of people in Hollywood that have still managed to overdose and still managed to pass away from stuff like that. But I would say a good chunk of them probably have people around them all the time and are gonna call if something is going on. And I mean, there are definitely. Things we could talk about where that, even if it does happen, it doesn't always work right, but... Well, like Heath Ledger, like Mary-Kate Olsen, it was Mary-Kate who was with him, right? Not Ashley. I don't remember. She didn't call 911 when he was overdosing. She called his head of security. Right. And because his, she had the number for his head of security, who has the number for his private doctor, who's able to handle things. And so they basically have concierge yeah. um, safe so they injection have their sites. Sa- yeah, they have their safe injunction, injection stuff or their safe use spots. Or they're people that are going to watch them and make sure that they're not overdosing or that they're still breathing in the morning. Um, but when someone who doesn't have the same status or, you know, money or whatever wants the access to be safe doing the same things, then it's looked at as like a terrible, how dare they, why do they get to do it? Why are they getting free treatment? And it's kind of ultimately maybe free for them at the time, but saves us money too. Because if they're not going to the hospital and using the, you know, the Phoenix fire resource, like you're saying, going on the side of the street to shake them awake, there's, okay, so there's your ambulance out of, or rescue or engine out of service then if they do end up transporting to the emergency room, then you're taking them out of the service longer, you're taking them to an emergency room, you're taking up a sped from somebody who may actually need it, who's actually in an emergent situation. Then they get stuck there because they, the hospital can't just discharge you under the in, you know influence. They have to now wait for you, so now you're just holding up spots. 
that's racking up money in the system mm-hmm. that ultimately we're going to pay anyway if you think of it as like your yeah, tax we're dollars still paying you're paying for, a bed. for you know Medicaid or whatever uh, you're still paying for it you're probably paying more for it than them to be safe the whole time oh yeah I guarantee a safe injection site yeah. is cheaper to run than or even a wet house yeah. yeah like knowing that an al- you're going to drink alcohol there cool We'll got someone to watch you. And I, I also think it's weird. So there's always the thing where people don't want, not in my neighborhood, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Very recently it went viral that Dave Chappelle was speaking to his city council because they wanted to put some high density housing units like mm-hmm. in his neighborhood and he was fighting against it because basically like he lives in an area where millionaires live on acreage yeah they don't want subsidized not in my backyard right and then people were like this guy sucks um and so and then people they don't want to have methadone clinics in their neighborhood or that they LA has a thing where a lot of the reasons they allow street camping is in order to make homelessness illegal, they have to have enough beds to house those people, and they don't. And a lot of the reason they don't is because neighborhoods won't approve Mm -hmm. those housing units in the neighborhood. Now, I'll tell you this. If they put a wet house in my neighborhood... I would welcome it because that means that those people aren't on the street corners, right? right. They're in they're in their home. They're and they're part of this process where they are one one or two notches highly like higher yeah. on the functionality as a human being than they are currently on the street. So I, I that and I would rather them be in a home where they're getting some sort of hygiene and care and they aren't on my street corner in front of my house. Exactly. Like I live in an apartment right down the street where for a weird blip of time there I've been there for like seven and a half years um and it's been fine and it's technically got like a gate and you know you're not supposed to be able to get through the gates are all broken now but whatever um but we had a a weird six month time period there where a couple of homeless people had realized that that a complex was there Mm -hmm. and like I went to do laundry one morning opened the laundry door and there was a homeless man asleep on the floor like with his bike and everything and I mean, I just kind of walked in and still was like, all right, like, how you doing? Like, I didn't go, oh, my God, get out of Like, I didn't freak out. I mean, I had that moment of, like, oh, there's a person in yeah. this room. Um, but he was just trying to sleep in a closed, you know, like, in- environment. I want to say it was a winter-ish time. So I think he just was warm. That yeah. He somehow the, the rumors had spread that we had a complex, that the gates weren't working. Mm-hmm. And there was a time, like, there was a couple of people that would sleep on our bench. And did I really feel excited about homeless people being in our apartment complex. No, I mean, I definitely went to security, or not security, but maintenance, and was like, hey, just FYI, there's there's a guy in our laundry room right now. Um, but I still went and did my laundry, still treated him like he was a person. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, are you, you doing okay? He's like, I was just trying to take a nap. You know, like, but if there was an apartment complex right next door where he could have just been sleeping on his own anyway, he wouldn't have been in our laundry room. Like, yeah. I'd rather him be in a place he could go where he's safe then in my laundry room, but then I'd also rather, I guess, maybe be in my laundry room than someone else's because not everyone's as nice. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's probably for the better that I'm the one that walked in on him in the laundry room because I was like, oh, hey, bud, what are you doing? Yeah. What well, you... yeah, you definitely had a better yeah, reaction probably. than a lot of people. But yeah. yeah, so this sort of like not in my backyard mentality doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. because they're already in your backyard. They're, yeah. They I'd are... rather them be housed and fed and, yeah. you know, have a nice bed to sleep in and not a couple of you know, cardboard boxes. Yeah, in they get to sleep in a bed. I get to ride my bike on the sidewalk because no one's asleep on it. Everybody yeah. wins. Yeah, you live not far from. I mean, that's a rehab facility right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, on the corner. Yeah, yeah. and I, do you have a ton of issues with them being in your yard and stuff? 
with there being a facility right there? Uh, no, the people who go, who live at that facility mm-hmm. stay on the grounds of yeah, that facility. Exactly. The problems that I have with people are the people who don't live there. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of, yeah. yeah. It's not that facility it's not the that's people the issue. Who live Those at the people facility. are safe and in a spot where... They're being monitored and yeah. they go outside and they, they talk to each other yeah. and they're smoking cigarettes yeah. and like, that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, they're, like, normal neighbors. They just live in a shittier building than yeah. mine. Like, literally, that's all they are. It's actually not so bad on the inside. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I've no. done a lot of patient transports <laughs> in and out of that place. It's oh. not bad inside. So, it's, oh, you know what I'm thinking of? The one across the street oh, that is a shitty building. No, but, yeah. No. it's trying not to say names because I don't want to, like, yeah. totally. You live right trying next to Hey! But, um, yeah, no, the problems that I have with people since I moved to this neighborhood that I've spoken about ad nauseum on this podcast are with the people who are not Correct. part of a facility. Um, and so my, my ex used to always joke, there's a mall near us called Metro Center that's been empty for years. And he's like, yeah. can we not put them in Metro Center? Because if you walk around Metro Center, it's like zombie land. Yeah, it is. It's real bad. My sad like, divorce. If they're going to live there anyway... Let's make it livable. Well, yeah. Then. My sad divorce apartment was by Metro yeah. Center. Oh, and yes. that's where I had well people <laughs> smoking meth in my laundry room, smoking meth outside my front door, following me around, trying to borrow a phone because, well, because our gates didn't work. Yeah. But, um, but if they had been housed, they wouldn't, they would have been smoking meth in the fucking, in Metro Center and not on my doorstep. Yeah. And I would prefer. With maybe would, someone watching them who knows when it's too much or knows that they need intervention medically and can step in or yeah. stop them from freaking out and assaulting someone. Like, yeah, just keep it, keep it monitored and controlled. Yeah. It's just like toddlers dude. toddlers are fucking crazy. Right. That's why we send them to preschool. We don't just let them hang out outside of a Walgreens all day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Gotta wrangle those little suckers up. Well, cause they're going to eat sugar. They're going to get crazy. You're going to have to they're say no dirt. more sugar. They're going to just straight up pick up dirt and put them in their Yeah. Moms. They're going like... to do weird things that are bad for them, which is why we put them in preschool mm-hmm. or daycare so that there's someone watching them to make sure that they don't shove pencils up their fucking noses. Like, and so when you go, okay, yeah, well, preschool actually, it works pretty well. Like not too many kids end up in the ER with a pencil up their nose. Right. Um, because there's a, there's a teacher watching them. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Could that work for adults? Can we not? Oh my goodness. You know how a lot of people talk about, um, like basically self-parenting for people Mm -hmm. who had rough childhoods and you don't. Ha- like you don't have that you didn't have that upbringing where someone was parenting you right so you have to learn how to have an internal monologue to parent and sometimes people are just they look like an adult but it's you're still your child self is in there and yeah. a lot of times they're like wounded and, and that so, goes back to the trauma stuff and the like it's all so can we not this is all them? starting to sound like it's somehow interconnected it's so weird just in the way that like children need adult supervision sometimes adults need supervision yeah. um i cut my own bangs last week and i uh, should yes yes and did. mallory had to hear all about it and i should have had someone there to take the i should have been away. here i should have been here to supervise that was a my bad for sure well that's <laughs> why we have um what are they called salons where we, we <laughs> yeah. can get haircuts safely well, um <laughs> you're supposed to be supervised yes yeah, even I, there's a safe spot safe cut spot you know yeah like, i should have i should have done that in a safe cut spot and not in my own bathroom it's fine um but they look yeah. fine your hair looks Thank fine. You. I'm working. I'm working my okay. way through things. Okay. Um. But uh. But yeah. So it's just so funny that it's like, 
And a lot of it is like, well, you can't legally, you cannot tell them what to do. They are adults. And it's like... Some people want that, though. As someone, I can vouch for myself, as someone who has a lot of stuff together and the outside looking in, like, someone looks at my life, they're like, oh my gosh, you've done this, 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 and this, and you're so, you take care of yourself so well, and you're so in control. But, like, you know how nice it would be if someone else made the decision for, like, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight and just made it for me? Or, like... Someone else was like, hey, we're doing this this weekend. Like, a decision by another adult would be so nice. Yeah, I... Some adults, even well-put-together adults such as myself, who's not an addict living on the street, would be totally fine with someone telling me what to do every once in a while. Like, not in a abusive, manipulative way, but just like, hey, I'm going to come over and grab you at 3.30 and we're going to go get lunch. Oh, cool. Like... That's a little, you know, comparison, but even just having someone be like, hey, it is 7.30 at night. Have you had dinner yet? I actually have a couple of friends currently because of my stress levels lately. That are doing that? Who are texting me during the day to make sure I've eaten. Like, Which is great. And yeah, sometimes you I don't love, eat till yeah. your blood sugar's too low. Yeah, and I'll then... be, I've had a few recent experiences, especially at the end of the block this, you know, the end of the year, when we had like six finals in two weeks and I, you know, was just trying to study and stay afloat. Um, where it would be like 9.30 at night, and I'm like, oh, oh have I eaten today? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, maybe that's why I'm so irritable. Oh, I should... Have I had another adult to be like, hey, it is noon. You should have a snack. Yeah. Um, and I'm not an addict. So, like, if I'm that... If I'm able to take care of myself on some level, and then still would like someone to direct me in the way I should be doing things better, um, I can't imagine how someone whose life is in shambles would appreciate someone being like, hey... Have you eaten today? Hey, let's make sure, let's get you on a meal plan. Hey, mm-hmm. let's get, have you had a, when's the last time you showered? Which is something I have to ask myself. Well, Even as a functioning adult, pretty frequently, I, more frequently than I'd like to admit, is have you bathed? When's the last time you brushed your teeth? Let's, you know what, let's do that for you. Then you start to build it like, oh, I'm a human again. Even as someone with a house and a roof who may or may not, you know, in my stress stress phases not shower as much as I probably I live by myself I yeah. don't if I'm at home studying all week no one's seeing me anyway um you can feel like a totally different person after you've bathed after a shower well and I and I'm not caked in the phoenix summer sweat and dirt like that moment of feeling human in just the in the life I live mm-hmm. think of how monumental that could be for someone who doesn't have a home and a roof that moment of having a bath or a shower or being able to brush their teeth and have a bed, then all of a sudden your outlook kind of changes. Well, I have a friend who was a doctor, um, and she, when her father died, she is not a very emotional person, Mm -hmm. um, and so she doesn't really talk about feelings. She is, and she's an addict, right? Um, Because even doctors can be addicts. Oh, yes. And in the wake of her father's death, she didn't talk to anyone about him dying. She just really spiraled into addiction. And one of our friends would invite her over for dinner. And then when she showed up, have her take a shower and give her clean clothes to wear. Because this is an adult person who's a doctor running a medical practice who has an apartment who who was going through something very traumatic and was not showering. And so, because I asked her once, 
because I had seen the friend and she like I gave her a ride and she smelled really bad like it it's my car stunk mm -hmm. after she got out and then um, I talked to uh, the friend. She goes, well, yeah, what I do is I invite her over for dinner. And I tell her, hey, um, why don't you take a shower? I got some clean clothes for you. And then you can just lay down and be comfortable while I cook. And I was that like, it's going to make me want to cry. Like, that is such a sweet, that's a special. It's a special person. Yeah. Well, you know that person. She used to work at my job. Mm. And now she flies. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. But, and I just was like, I was like, how, how do you person. manage to do that? Because I'm uncomfortable telling people what to do. And she goes, well, you know, you have to handle people with kid gloves, but it's important to tell them, you know, that yeah. they need to take care of themselves. And I was, I, I really admired her for that. Because for me, I just was like, man, this, I, I hate, I'm trying to help my friend out, but yeah. they're stinking up my car. <laughs> right. And, and, and so that's like a grown adult that, yeah. you know, needed, needed that help to get her through that. Did she get of her through life. it? Yeah. And is she functioning or back to being Well, she's like... at a lower level. She's at a high, she's a functioning addict now. Okay. And for probably almost a year, she was not, she was not a functioning addict. But it was ultimately because of her father dying. It was her father's so death and she spiraled. massive trauma and that was how she functioned. And she didn't know how to talk about things because as someone who doesn't express her feelings well and is... I assume on the autism spectrum, like having known her for over a decade, I, I think mm -hmm. she, so feelings are not easy for her. Oh. Um, and so she used um, drugs to get her through that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, when you tell us someone's story like that, you develop empathy, like when you go, mm -hmm. oh, that person's just an addict. But if you right. go, oh, well, they went to war, they saw all their friends blown up, yeah, they came home, they didn't know how to relate to people anymore because they just spent two fucking years in a war zone. Yeah, because that's how long we s were sending people, like we were sending people on like multiple tours of duty with no breaks. And so when you go, oh, well, they went through that and they came home and they couldn't relate to their friends and family. Yeah. And, and, and then, then so there's no Artemis for you because heaven forbid the medical system does anything to back you up when you get here. Like, yeah. And so you're just kind of left to flounder. And it's awful because those are the people that we, you know, we Should call our be, heroes yeah. and stuff. Like we, we, that's a whole other yeah. episode again. Like we could just, but we could have our own little spinoff happening here with the things I could. But they're like, we are, even though the resources still are not there for veterans, we are more empathetic yes. when they become addicts totally. because we, we acknowledge PTSD from war. It is only recently that we're acknowledging PTSD from, you know, growing up in violent inner cities, um, mm -hmm. physical abuse as a child, sexual abuse. Yep. Like we are just now acknowledging that you can get PTSD without going to war. Well, yeah, it's, it's the idea that my trauma isn't. Trauma is trauma. Whether if you've perceived something as trauma, it is trauma. Mm -hmm. Whether it is trauma to you, or whether I would look at that and say, "Oh my gosh, that come on, knock it off." Like, if you, have, for whatever reasons in your experiences and your viewpoints and your perspectives, if something has happened to you and you think it's a trauma, it is a trauma. It doesn't matter what size it is. It doesn't matter what it looks like to someone else. It doesn't matter if it is. You the know, worst thing that ever happened to you is the worst thing that ever yeah, happened to you. Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether it would be the worst thing to someone else. Mm -hmm. To you, that was the worst thing. And I think that's kind of where this all like ties into remembering that, yeah, someone's an addict and they, you know, are doing things that we might not agree with or they're, you know, 
you don't agree with doing, I wouldn't do an IV drug because, well, I'm scared of needles, honestly. Yeah. Like, I, that sounds horrible to me. But I can understand if your experience that whatever happened that made you feel like that was the worst thing that happened to you is something you want to escape, that you're so willing to stab yourself with something to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more than just a chemical thing that you're trying to strive for. That's a something as a person changed you being someone that you think of as yourself. You don't think of yourself as a person. Well, and yeah, and so uh, society tells you that you you're an and, addict. This right. is right, and then you so are. you already feel like you're not really a person, which is why you want to do this stuff because something happened to you that derailed you from thinking I'm worthy. I'm of value, and you can't even so visualize a do, different life. Yeah, you can't visualize it. So then you reach out to, you know, sex. Drugs, shopping, food, you know, whatever your addiction is. And I genuinely think all of us have something on some level. I think we're all addicts. Mm-hmm. Just it doesn't matter. Some people function, some people don't. And some people's ad- addictions are, you know, obviously life-altering. And some people's are, they just, you know. They wanna, can be closeted. They, they want to they clip their fingernails every Thursday. And that's, you know, their whatever. Um, but you have an experience that makes you feel like you're not a person. You want to escape that experience, even if it's something that happened as a kid that you weren't actively aware of. At some point, you thought you weren't of any value. Then you do something, you escape that th- feeling, you feel good for a minute. You're like, oh, wow. Took, I didn't even think about that yeah. horrible thing for like 20 minutes. I was in a warm hug because of all that fentanyl or that heroin. Then you come out of it, and all of a sudden, people continue because you did that thing to tell you you're no longer worthy, to tell you you're not a person anymore. And that's a hard cycle to get out of because if you already inherently think that you're not a value... And then it's supported by everyone then, else around you. And then everyone, you, every time you're... The blip moment of time you are sober, everyone's telling you how terrible of a person you are. Why would you want to be sober? Why would you want to feel that well, way? Well, because you go, this is who I am. I am an addict, so I'm going to fulfill right, my destiny. Right, exactly. And then you go somewhere where, you know, people, you go to an ER and the nurses and the doctors are rude to you or you are picked up by, I don't know, like Phoenix Fire or something and they treat you like you're garbage and mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, I guess I am garbage. And why would you want to, you have no motivation to get out of it. Then, all of a sudden, this harm reduction thought process starts coming out where it's like, hey, remember that those people are people. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. They're going to use, but maybe if they feel like a person for a minute, they won't want to use as much, or at least if they are going to continue to use, they're safe about it. They're safe about it. It's and not going not to even, continue yeah. to use that, that the ripple of the pebble where it's like, oh, well, now you've got, you know, cellulitis because you shot up, and now you're going to have to have, you know, a bunch, you're going to have to go to the ER and get IV antibiotics, and you're going to be there for two weeks, and, or, you know, you have such a bad abscess, they're going to have to amputate your leg. Like, if you can, maybe just let them have the escape from reality in a safe zone. Yeah. And then incorporate some therapy and some counseling and make you feel like a person. And that's where those like 30% or whatever that statistic was don't use again. Well, I was They want to feel like someone cares for a second. If you are an ER doctor and you do not like addicts and you look down upon them, the best way to not have to deal with addicts is to offer them harm reduction because yeah. they aren't in there with their abscesses and Mm-mm. cellulitis. I had a friend um, once say to me, we're both in the service industry, and I am very attentive to my customers' needs because, mm-hmm. like, 
I want you to feel like in your Grammy's house. Like, what are you, anything you want, I got That's you. That's why I keep coming back for more. Um, and he was like, he said something about how I take good care of people, even when they're awful. I go, because I don't want them getting out of their chair and finding me and coming up to the register or whatever because they need something. If I don't fucking like you... I want to make sure you have everything you fucking need so you can stay in your goddamn seat over there. Yeah. So, like, if I don't like you as an addict and I am an ER doctor, okay, how can I keep you out of my fucking ER? Yeah. And you know how I keep you out of my fucking ER? Here's a wet Clean house. needles. Here's yeah. a wet house. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so it's just, like, even if you don't respect those people, even if you hold them in contempt for your state, just like I say, for me as a person, I don't want th- I don't want to step over them when I'm walking my dog. Yeah. I don't, I've stepped on a heroin needle while walking a dog, my dog when I was walking Frank and I was wearing flip-flops and thank God it did not go through to my foot and I only ever walked him in boots from then on but it was that's terrifying that's so scary and so like for me even if I don't fucking like addicts or I don't see them as people I want them to be in treatment facilities Mm -hmm. I want them to be in halfway houses I want them in community living I want them somewhere where they are being cared for in a way that they aren't up in my face right so what do you need to get out of my hair yeah and like it's, it's so just a roof, to, yeah, food, just, a shower. Yeah, there you go. Just to appeal to really selfish, unempathetic yeah. people. If you, yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll appeal to the the bleeding hearts, and you can yeah, appeal. you can appeal to yeah. people's empathetic sides, and I can appeal to the assholes. Yeah, because I get it. You don't want to be fucking bothered. You think, oh, I make a million dollars a year, and. of it goes to taxes. Why do I have to deal with these people? Well, guess what? Maybe you should fucking lobby to have your taxes go to services that keep those people off your front lawn. Yeah. That is possible. We do pay a lot in taxes. Mm -hmm. It usually doesn't go towards shit that benefits us as citizens. No, it doesn't. But we should be pushing to have it do that. Yeah. So, like, taking care of addicts will get them out of your fucking backyard. It will get them out of your hair. It'll keep them out of your ERs. But then you're just enabling them. Then you're just making it seem like it's okay. Yeah, it's the same thing rich people do with their kids. They're useless, like, dumb, unambitious kids. They give them a fake job at their business Mm -hmm. so they can say, my kid has a job and they go to work every day. Your kid's a fucking idiot. They don't do anything. You just gave them an office, a parking spot, and a filing cabinet, and it keeps them out of everyone's fucking hair. Yeah. Your fake job that you gave your stupid kid, or, like, (laughs) I know people who, like, they're, like, they hire their Mm son-in-law because, like, they want it to be, like, their son-in-law provides for his family, but he's an idiot, and he doesn't make that much money. So they're like, okay, well, I make a lot of money. Let me hire my son-in-law, and I'll set him up in the quote-unquote family business, and then he can provide for his family which includes my daughter yeah so Even though, I, theoretically i'm the one doing it it'll look like he's doing it yeah fine. and so that is harm reduction mm-hmm. you know what i mean you're giving your fucking kid a fake job so he stops date raping all the time <laughs> can we not fucking give addicts that a place boy to live? i'm scared of yeah yeah that's exactly we why why does the frat boy get to go into his fucking wet house which is a fake job in a family office yeah and we can't give an addict a place to live it makes zero sense it to doesn't me. make any sense because it's the same thing people need to feel belonging they need to feel purpose mm-hmm. they need to have and you know i'm a big um i'm a big discipline equals freedom person like mm-hmm. i think the more discipline you have the more freedom you have in life yeah um and so people need to have re- they they need to have set schedules they need to have appointments they need to have things that they have to do people mm-hmm. to people to see places to go and when you marginalize somebody where they can't have a job and they're alienated from their family they don't have shit else to do but fucking take a dump on your sidewalk yeah. Okay. But if you fucking get them, you hook them up with a job at Ace Hardware, and they can stock the wrench 
dishes. You know what I mean? And then they have a house to go home to and a kitchen to cook meals in. Mm -hmm. And what do you know? They're not a crazy caveman looking addict taking a shit on your stoop. They're a person in the world. Yeah. Like, and it's just, it's so frustrating to me because I, there are days where I feel unempathetic to the situation around me because I find it to be so irritating and it rattles me to a core to my core and I, I want to run from the city and I think yeah. that's where you and I are very different people because I am such yes a, and no. I want to well I'm a retreatist yeah. and you're a fighter yeah okay that part I was gonna say but like I do also have those days where I'm like oh my gosh like I'm real sick of seeing it like I I sometimes have a struggle with that empathy part of me where it's like okay oh my gosh, like, why are you running out into traffic and you're being a crazy person and, uh, but then I'm like, okay, wait, take a breath. Mm-hmm. So, they're still a person and, like, if I, you know, if I was their doctor or if they came into my ER, I would still take that breath and be like, how are you today? Yeah. Like, and then you, then maybe they leave and you're like, God, that guy was such a dick. But in that moment, you can still kind of be kind but it does it's empathy fatigue like sometimes you're just like I don't want to deal with this anymore which I totally get like as a patient I understand that people in medical services definitely have empathy fatigue oh but yeah that moment that you encounter a doctor oh my god am I gonna fucking cry on mic it's all I fucking do <laughs> sorry people it's all I fucking do I just talk you're gonna a mic- start then I'm gonna start. I just talk into a microphone awesome. and cry but so I would say in my experience as a sick person in America I have run into a lot of dismissal and empathy mm-hmm. fatigue. And the minute that you have a doctor who sees you as a person oh. and who sees what you're going through, I am definitely crying on my side, Mallory. <laughs> but the minute you have a doctor who sees you as a person and takes what you're saying and listens to you, and listen, even if they say, I under I can't help you, but I, I acknowledge that what you're saying is true, yeah. it is fucking life-changing. And like... You it know, is. In in my journey of having 15 years of misdiagnoses and botch surgery, the doctor who, like, looked at me and held my fucking hand and, like, he was, he's religious, like, he prayed with me before mm-hmm. surgery and having someone go, like, oh, my God, I'm going to cry. But having, because, and because, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, but mm-hmm. the surgeon I went to is Christian and he feels like when he stumbled on what he can do to help women, oh. he Ooh. felt that that was his calling. And so yeah. having that person hold my hand, listen to me, acknowledge those truths. And want and, to bless you with what he yeah. feels and, is and, important. Yeah, and saying, like, the, your your pain is real. You matter as a person, mm-hmm. and, and you should not be experiencing this, and you do not deserve to be experiencing mm-hmm. this. I mean, I can't tell you how emotional it was. And then, like, after my surgery, you know, I saw pictures, and, like, oh, this thing is real, this thing that... For 15 years, people have been telling me, isn't real, I don't matter, I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, like, oh, no. And so, like, like you said, if that person comes into your ER and you see... Yeah. You're you're a person, and you are hurting. Whether or not I think that you should be doing heroin to deal with that pain, I'm acknowledging that your pain is real, and, like, that can change someone's life. Absolutely. Yeah, like, I, I strive to be that as a paramedic, and I've... Definitely think that when I was younger, you know, 15 years ago, ironically, the same timeline, um, and I first started working as an EMT, I worked in a community, <sighs> I'm from, like, Northern California, very, like, conservative, redneck, Hickville-style Northern California, and when I first started on my journey to medicine, um, 
the the thought process of people who maybe like yours was more medical but like the psychiatric and the addiction side of things was like uh like I was sort of taught that it was like they're just a nuisance and they're kind of annoying and like and how do you like, just how do brush you just, that dirt off your stoop right basically. and like let's just get them out of here and you know as a naive 19 20 year old coming into that who grew up in an already conservative town and in an already like conservative whatever I mean I have I have my brain has grown leaps and bounds since what I I am completely not what I grew up what I think they wanted me to grow up to be um but unfortunately like that sort of thought process that mentality you know was taught to me and that's kind of how I will openly admit I probably was for the first couple of years and my dad was a raging alcoholic and so I had some real heavy resentment towards addicts because my experience was so bad and it was all about me and they were mean to me and my dad left me and you know like I made it very personal Mm -hmm. and then as the years have gone by and I've seen it so many times over and over and I've still managed to even with some of my empathy fatigue want to pursue pursue moving into this further um it's almost like that has started to really flip like I started as a really jaded salty because I was taught that's how you were yeah that's how it was you know you just treat like oh oh, we got to respond to the homeless shelter again oh one of these like that's how a lot of my preceptors and other partners reacted and it was weird if you were like okay let's you know let's go be nice and you know I remember having one medic that I worked with and um ironically I ended up becoming kind of a minor mini version of her like became there's these two paramedics that I worked with when I was becoming a paramedic I think if they were to like have a little paramedic baby it would have been <laughs> me um he was very kind and compassionate and very smart um but also like he was just kind of he was nice and friendly um and then she, everyone thought she was a total bitch. You know, like, it was always like, ugh, you have to work with her, ugh. Um, but ultimately, like, she took her job super seriously. She was a kick-ass paramedic. And she was the most kind paramedic to those people. Really? Like, in the whole, like, she would, like, she was the kind that would sit in the back of an ambulance with, you know, a homeless person who was, you know, having a psychotic episode and hold their hand. And I remember when, you know, like I said, when I was new and if 90% of the people are like, oh, here we go again. And then there's this one medic who's like, hold on, how are you? Yeah. What's going on today? Let's actually like, why are we here? What, what happened today? And then initially I was like, oh, why is she doing that? She's just enabling them. She's just making them. And then as, you know, my years have gone on and I've done, you know, now 15 years of ambulance stuff and I've finished a full year of medical school, um, I've more, I've become her now. Like, mm-hmm. not, like, recently. Like, that was, like, seven years ago, like, I switched and was like, this is not okay. Like, I, and I will, <laughs> here we go. Is this my turn? It's my <laughs> turn. It's your turn. Um, ironically, one of the moments that I remember, and I don't have a ton of great, I'm not a good, like, memory person. Like, I should really start a journal to, like, remember. You're going to ask me, like, tomorrow, like, what do we do? Do you remember talking about this yesterday? I mean, like, we did what yesterday? I won't I remember. Okay, cool. So me either. I, like, hard format reset every time <laughs> I leave a room. But every once in a while I have something that sticks with me. And two of the things in my paramedic career that have stuck with me involve very similar moments to what you kind of just talked about. Um... One and both involved. One was an was an addict, and one was a psychosis issue, um, which is kind of funny. That like, I think these are the moments that have really like 
molded me or like I was really tough and then they melted me back down and then kind of like made me a softer person inside. It's, it's an interesting thought process. Um, but one guy, um, ironically, I was transporting out of, or two, I want to say I was taking, I was taking him out of the facility that's close to your house. Um, he was a alcoholic. He had been brought in on like the day after Christmas for relapsing again. His alcohol level was too high and his blood pressure was too high and they were not capable. They were like, he needs to go get medically cleared before we can accept him. You know, he can come back. He just, he's unstable right now. Like he's still acutely intoxicated and his blood pressure is way too high. Um, so I still was kind of in that like, oh, I got to go to another psych facility, another rehab facility. Here we go. And this guy, very similar to my dad's age, um, raging alcoholic, still smelled like alcohol. Um, it was probably like, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, I think the day after Christmas, it was either Christmas or the day after Christmas. Um, hi buddy. Um, and the, the staff was not necessarily being kind to him. I wouldn't necessarily say that they were being actively rude, but they definitely weren't, you know, being mm. kind. And I got him into my ambulance and I started asking him like, what was going on? And he, here's mine. Um, had a adult, <laughs> thank you. Had an adult son, uh, who was doing really well, um, who didn't want to have a relationship with him because of his alcohol issues. So he said he had been sober and working really hard at it for about three years. And he finally got the courage to call his son that Christmas. Oh my God. And his son was like, I have nothing. I have nothing. I don't want to talk to you. You mean nothing to me. Like basically like, oh, it's my drunk dad calling. He's like, I've been sober. Like I, you know, I've been working. And his son pretty much wrote him off and the dude relapsed. The dude lost it and relapsed and I thought to myself like man I haven't talked to my dad in a couple of years um and if anyone was treating my dad even with the history we have the way that that staff was treating him I'd have lost my mind mm -hmm. um so that was one of those moments and I sat there and I you know I did I held his hand and I was like I am so sorry to hear about that and you know like I felt this weird connection to him because I felt like I was looking at my dad on that gurney like and I mean Right. Shortly after that, I ended up like reaching out to my dad and like trying to olive branch it. Granted, he still, he was a raging alcoholic and my olive branch still didn't fix things. And then he died. So it is what it is. But that moment of like seeing this man who was working so hard against his addiction to regain his family or his connection with his kid to immediately get written off. I saw both sides of it. I yeah. saw my side of it where you're just trying to protect yourself because of the addiction. And then I saw him bawling hammered on my gurney, you know, because he relapsed because I, he was yeah. hurt and it sucked. And that was one of those moments where I was like, it really nailed it into me that like, that is a person. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. He was, he reeked of alcohol and he was hammered and his blood pressure was out of the, out of control, but he was broken. He was hurting really bad. And the only thing he thought might make him feel better for a moment of time was to just drink like a fifth of vodka. And total side note, something that I find to be a problem with the predominant <laughs> recovery process is, you know, AA does the chips and you mm -hmm. get the certain days and stuff. And I am a, and what happens is when you relapse, you think, oh, well, I already lost my chip. I lost my days. There's apps for sober days or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so people tend to go on vendors like that. Mm -hmm. And 
it really breaks my heart for that man because yeah. three years of hard work, even if he had what I would call a, let's call it a whoopsie. Yeah. Which you know I think I mean? he had. He had a whoopsie and he went back to, towards treatment. A lot of addiction recovery models, I would say most of them would negate that three years. Yeah. And even if I'm looking at someone who's actively hammered, but they just had three fucking years. Yeah. I, I'm still proud of you. Oh, God for, damn it. But that's how I felt. I was like, no, you did what you needed to do. Like, and you know, sitting there reassuring him that like, it's not like you'll, you can come back, you'll get back on track. You yeah, know, this is a whoopsie. This is, this is the time to realize maybe you need to do this for you and not for him. And not for like, him. Like, it's, and you've done it. You've, you've been there. This is okay. You, you will get past this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, my other one was a psychiatric. It's actually what I ended up writing um, my story about in my personal statement, which, like, got me into medical school. So it's, like, <laughs> my, my thing. But I had a lady uh, that I took. She was a schizophrenic, um, but was really well controlled on medications. Um, her husband was, like, her caretaker. He was always, like, very good about making sure she took him. But he was out of town on a work trip, and so he had left, like, her meds out, but she had, like, not, you know taking them the way she was supposed to and she hallucinated again um she tried to kill herself and so I was taking she had been medically cleared and I was taking her to the psych facility for the inpatient part of it and she was very kind um but very obviously having a an acute psychosis situation um actively hallucinating and I was like what do you see what does he look like and then she described him to me and she you know and I never once was like, you don't, he's not there. He's mm-hmm. not real. I was like, what does he look like? Tell me what he looks like. What kind of, what does he sound like? What is he saying to you? And she kind of like, you could tell like initially she was like, huh? Like, and then that moment kicked in where she realized I wasn't like just trying to make fun of her. Like I was genuinely asking her like, what's going I believe, on? I believed her. Like yeah. it was that moment where she realized that like I wasn't just like, okay so what does it look like and just where I was genuinely like this is very real to you Mm -hmm. what tell me what it looks like and I mean I'll never forget how she described it and like all this stuff but we ended up talking and it was like a 30 minute ride to the place and so you know she described to me she told me the things he said she's been seeing him since she was 16 and when she's off her when she's on her meds she doesn't see him it was like a, it wasn't a full person. It was like a floating bust of like a man mm-hmm. that would like float in, and it was. But to her, that was very, was real. very real. He was in the ambulance with us. Like it was mm-hmm. very real to her. And um, you know, like she started seeing when she was sixteen. When she's on her meds, he goes away, and she feels fine. But her husband left, and she forgot a couple of her pills. And then he came back, and he was really mad because it had been a long time, and he really wanted her to kill him, like herself. Like he was like very adamant and that's why she it was very scary and it was very scary to her and it was Mm -hmm. very real to her was it real to me no but my perspective is different than her perspective and to her he was very real and he was in that ambulance with us and you know so I got her to the place and when she got off my gurney she was like is it okay if I give you a hug and I was like yeah of course she like gave me a big hug and she was like, you are the first person who's talked to me. Like I'm a real human in a really long time. She had just spent like three days at the hospital. Like I was like, it made me sad that like my 30 minutes in an ambulance with this woman is the first medical provider she'd had that didn't. Oh, what does he look like? It was like, because even if you're, it wasn't real to me, but it was very real to her. And if you are an expert 
in psychology, you know that it's real to those yeah. people. Yeah, and if you treat someone like a human, whether it's psychosis or addiction or trauma, you take that moment, like you said, like as the patient, you've had that. Oh my God. As the provider, I've done that. There aren't enough of us that do no, that. that because, because you would expect that it would be commonplace. In you the would same think way if that, you want to go into healthcare that you give a shit. Well, you, <laughs> you expect if you walk into my bar and order a drink, I'm going to make you the drink and bring it to you because that's like, that's what my job yeah. is. My job is to bring you the things that you ask for. Yeah. And so if I walk into a hospital with symptoms that are distressing me, my expectation would be that the medical provider would acknowledge that these things are real to yeah. me and they are causing distress. Right. And so as psychologists, like, you know that to people with schizophrenia that, that those things are real to them. Or, like, they know, like, with dementia that what causes the patients the most stress is being corrected. Correct. And I'll never forget, it was, you know, one of those This American Life or Radio mm-hmm. Lab type shows. And this woman was, or this man was an improv actor and his mother-in-law got dementia and she came to live with them. And he ended up doing this radio essay about the experience because as he learned about dementia and cared for her, he was a great care provider because he He would yes and her reality. And so she would improv with her. And so she ended up being really happy and being a lot more at peace than Mm -hmm. most people with dementia are because it is so stressful to always be told that you are wrong that your reality is not correct. That you're, and it's like, your reality may not be the agreed upon reality, but you are experiencing that, and in that way it is true. Mm-hmm. In the same way that like we respect people who have different religions, because whether or not we believe in that, it seems real to them. Yeah. And so, listen, I'm not defending all religions. There are, Absolutely there not. are problems. Several. Significant <laughs> issues. But, but if things are real to someone, and that it helps... Like, I just think that you have to acknowledge that. And so, as a semi-practicing Satanist, one of the cardinal (laughs) sins is solipsism, which is only seeing things from your point of view. Right. And it really, really frustrates me when I see people interacting and the person is not listening. They are thinking. They are thinking about, like, that's, you know what I mean? They're, like, negating or they're arguing. They're, like, looking for the next step instead of thinking of what's in front of them. Yeah, and I just am so not that way, because I am a listener um, outside of, you know, having a podcast and running my fucking mouth. Um, I really like to listen and understand people's perspectives, because I think that you cannot heal someone, particularly someone with a psychiatric illness, how are you going to heal them unless you listen to them? Right. How are you going to heal an addict unless you listen to them? You are not. Yeah, you're not. And, I mean, like I said in the beginning, like that, the whole harm reduction thing is based in public health, and yeah, there's a monetary part of it of like, oh yeah, if you can get them off of, out of the hospitals, then you're saving that money, and if they're not responding, whatever. But like, the biggest, to me, and my, you know, research or whatnot, foundation of harm reduction is that humanistic part of it Mm -hmm. that person that addict that psychiatric patient that person with endometriosis who's in pain it's real Mm -hmm. whatever happened to them is real and there is something that is standing between them and success as a person and so in that way physical and psychiatric illnesses are not that different Mm -mm. they're absolutely yeah it is i'm not gonna i'm not gonna 
but when you have <laughs> when you have a chronic illness, it is very similar to an addiction yeah. in that it puts a it puts a divider between you and your peers. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have after like what I went through, I don't really have any friends. I mean, I have you, and you're leaving me. But, okay. Um, <laughs> How am I going to be your own personal physician someday if I don't leave? I know that's true. I, I encourage you leaving. <laughs> but um, you know, in the same way that when you are embroiled in a drug addiction, it creates a divider between makes people you. look at you differently. Like yeah. you're not capable of something that someone else might be because well they've got that problem. Yeah, and you're you're missing family gatherings because you're high or you're missing family gatherings because you're for me sick. Yeah. You're missing all your friends. Or you're having a psychotic episode yeah. or you're too depressed to get out of bed. Like and, and now you don't have friends or peers because they're all out to brunch and you can't go to brunch. Mm-mm. Because you're sick or you're high or you don't have any money because you spent it on drugs, you can't go to fucking brunch. Yeah. And so then those people think, oh well, you 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 outsided yourself, and like that's honestly how I lost a lot of friends. Is like they thought that I was making like, it up. Like yeah, just like I just you just want to hang out with them. They're like, oh, she just doesn't ever want to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, well, whatever. There's her excuse again. Yeah. Or she's a baby. She has. Endometriosis is not a menstrual illness, but most people go, oh, she's being a baby about her periods. Oh, yeah. And no, they're like, not. no, it's my It's basically my, cancer. Yeah, my body was, my entire body was sick all month long, motherfuckers. But, like, so it created that divider, right? And it, in, in the way that they say people with endometriosis, you know, because of the impact it has on our, our work attendance mm-hmm. and yeah. then the financial drain, we are less successful in careers than people without it. It has a substantial... And, yeah. the, and drug addiction has the same thing. So, so does psychiatric yeah. stuff. It's, it's all chronic illness. Diet, people yeah, get looked you, differently because they're overweight or they're diabetic or they... Yeah, like, why, why aren't you a doctor like your cousins? Well, my cousins didn't have depression. Like, you know, there's a reason I'm 35 and in medical school. My depression took me off the trail for a couple of years. Yeah, it fucking, it slows your shit down. And so, like, I I, I don't see addiction really as anything different. It is, it is a medical problem that is standing between you and what would be considered success in your life. Um, and I don't know. And I just, I, I, I would like it if we would just. You know, put them in Metro Center. Yeah. we. Could, I mean, there's so many places, especially with, like, malls not really existing anymore. Those are beautiful real estates yeah. that you could totally throw, you know. But ultimately, people need to stop thinking about themselves all the time and what mm-hmm. we're all taught. It's. I will totally openly, transparently say that it is a very hard mental exercise to change the way you were taught to think your whole life. Like, growing up, I was taught to think all addicts are bad, they're bad people, they're, they're not worthy of whatever, don't give them money, don't feed the bears, you know, like, that kind of thing. And, I mean, there's probably some truth, not, like, I mean, yes, we've been talking about this, and, you know, oh, all addicts are, you know, there's still people, and obviously, yes. Are all of them going to be fixed, and are all of them going to be nice, and are all of them going to appreciate the care you want to give them? No. There are still always going to be bad apples in every batch, whether it's a chronic illness or a psychiatric. Well, and like, yeah, yeah there are bad people, whether or not they have issues. Period. And like, like I said, they're not going to become the CEO of Nabisco. No. But they might be able to become a cashier. Yeah. And like, that's the thing is like, if you I feel like, but I guess where I was going with those, like, not everybody really will. Ultimately, there are some people that are just incapable. Some of people, functioning. Some people will still die of cancer, yeah. but we try to treat cancer. Oh, totally. And some people... You still give them the yeah. chance. Some people get 
totally better. Some people, it, it comes back. Some people have permanent problems from it. Mm-hmm. But you fucking try. Yeah. And yeah, if not all of them make it, but you fucking try. 30% of people never using again is better than 0%. That's, I mean, 30% is fucking amazing. Yeah. That is a, like, if, and think of if we could start reforming the stigma about things and, you know, a needle exchange program isn't an enabling situation. Mm-hmm. It is a public health situation so if you want to be like the always it's about me thing, like, oh, I don't want to see him. I don't want to do it. You know, I don't want them in my yard. I don't. If you want to make it about like kind of to to cater to the assholes again, um, then you want them to have safe needle exchanges. You, you're not enabling them. You're getting them out of your face. You're not enabling them. You're making them less of your problem. Well, yeah, that's what I always say yeah. about people who are against like a universal health care or anything. <sighs> I go, I am a person in the world. I go to stores. I, I go to public parks. I used to ride on public transportation. Ideally, the people in line next to me and next to me on the bus, I want them to be vaccinated. And healthy. I want healthy. If they have fucking whooping cough, I want them to get that shit treated. I want that. You know why? It benefits me. If the person, if the people around me are taken care of, mm-hmm. it does benefit me. It's why your taxes go to school systems, whether or not you have children, because you have a safer community and a better society when children are educated properly. Because I've, you know, I grew up in a very conservative family Mm -hmm. and you hear things from people like that, like, it doesn't make sense why I have to, why my, I have to pay taxes towards school when I don't have kids. It's always like, well, I don't use these resources. Why do I have to pay for it? Because you do use those resources because it fucking benefits you to have those children in school. They're learning how to read and write, blah, blah, blah. They're not growing up to be monsters. Okay. They're growing up to be citizens and that's important. And so you, you want people around you to be taken care of. Exactly. So yeah, I think that's where I was trying to get with that. Like, the selfishness of, like, oh, why should I have to take care of you? Because, or why should I have to pay for that? Or why should I, why should I care? It doesn't affect me. But like, it does. But ultimately, like, it all affects everything. Like, yeah, I'm like, if you don't care about Everything people, is always interconnected. Yeah. What sort of fucking gated community do you live in? Can I afford to live there that you actually don't, that it doesn't, that, that addiction doesn't impact your life? Right. Because I live in a metro city, like, I live in a big city, so I, addiction does affect my life. These Mm -hmm. people being marginalized and left on the street does affect my life. Yeah. So, like, I I don't know what sort of, what what do they say, ivory tower you live in that you can't see that these people need help and them not getting help is a a negative effect on your life. It does. It absolutely is a negative effect on everyone's life. That's why it's all a public health issue. Like, if public health is improved... The workforces are improved. The school forces are improved. Education's improved. Like, hospital resources are improved. Like, the foundation of everything getting better is, like, improving the public, the health of everyone in your Mm -hmm. community, not just my house. And I don't do drugs, so no one else should do drugs. People are going to use. People are going to... No one's experience is going to ever be exactly the same. People are going to use. So people have used stuff from, they would, you know, find stuff back in the day. Like, drugs are not new. No. Altering, the dawn of human alter, history. Altering your mind is not a new mm-hmm. concept. I mean. And also just. It's always going to happen, but make sure they're not affecting their own health and your health. Boom. And show me a person who doesn't have an addiction, honestly. Yeah. Like, 
like I said earlier, it's, it's sex, drugs, food, it's shopping, food, when I, cleaning. When I quit weird drinking, stuff. I was in no way pious about my sobriety because like my relationship to food is so unhealthy that I was like, oh no, I'm I am I'm still an addict. Like I just have a different drug of choice mm-hmm. now and actually one that's more dangerous and socially isolating. Um, yeah. you know. Uh, I was uh, the there were times because, you know, I quit drinking and my bulimia got really bad and I'd just be at home, like, binging and purging. And I was like, why am I doing this? If I wanted to numb myself, I should be at a bar around people at least. Yeah. At least. I was like, I think, I think like, uh, drugs would be better at this point because at least they're social. This, like, yeah. bulimia shit is, like, <laughs> really, gross. it's really gross and lonely. Um, and so, yeah, or, like, people who are shopping addicts or, yeah. like, you know, out, or drama addicts. And you know that person in your office. Everyone listening to this has that fucking person Someone in their office. This shit star yeah the one that's like oh my god did you hear about what yeah. happened last week yeah Ugh. Ugh, i hate that person <laughs> but, yeah no me too not my favorite but yeah like everyone's perspectives different trauma affects all of us addiction affects all of us whether you want to admit it or you don't i mean i think i'm addicted to my dog i love her she's like, a potato she is a potato and a potato addiction is very common i mean yeah i mean everyone's got something and i think that some people have good support systems and they're able to handle it and people that don't have support systems need a safe support system. Yeah, they need a, they need a community support system, a government funded commu- support system, God forbid. Cuz there are like um you know most needle exchanges are like privately funded mm-hmm. charities. They're not coming from the government. And you're like why isn't it? Think but, of how much more they could benefit the community if we were willing to open our eyes to do things to better the community, even if it's not what we do. Yeah. Like, I don't do heroin. I don't do meth. But, like, if you're going to do it, I'd rather you do it and but, not have to be in my ambulance later. I don't go down slides, but I don't mind that my taxes go towards building parks that kids can go down yeah. slides on. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't, I don't have kids and I still would rather the school system out here be better. Like it doesn't really impact me and my stuff, but I would rather my friend's kids be more educated. You know, like I I want the people that I care about. Yeah. Even at at an arm's length, I want their, their lives to be successful. I want their kids to have good stuff. Even if it's not selfishly in my bubble, why would you not want every, like the happier people are, the better things are like. People feel good. When people feel good about themselves, they want to do good things. When when people feel like they're being valued and trusted and respected and safe, mm. they're more willing to do things to better themselves and make themselves, like, it's a cycle. Well, If it's you like, continue to tell someone they're not a person, they're going to continue to think they're not. If you build someone up, they'll go sky high. It's like the, um, the countries that have the highest happiness index, I put that in quotes, mm-hmm are countries that have really strong social, like government social support systems. They have a universal basic income. They have universal health care. And those citizens are happier. Even though they live in a country where they're being taxed up the wazoo, those countries generally have really high costs of living. Like, But the people are happy. And why? Because they have a, a, they have a network. They have yeah. food. They know they're going to be able to you know, buy dinner because they have an income that's coming their way. Like, yeah. There's so much I could spin off even further. <laughs> but like, yeah, like ultimately when you feel safe, you do better. You're a better person. Even if you're still using. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, 
Yeah. And, like, and, it's really, like, it's, and, yeah, and to- total. If only people would realize it could honestly be that simple. Like, total abstinence, I think, is also, like, a crazy goal. Yeah. Like, you have to be totally abstinent. If, if you knew, like, okay, your dad was an alcoholic, sorry to make mm-hmm. this personal, no, yeah. but if instead of getting blackout drunk every night, he got blackout drunk on Friday nights, that's still an upgrade. Yeah. Ideally, you wouldn't want to have to deal with him being blackout drunk at all, but, like, from seven nights a week to one night a week? Yeah. Upgrade. Yeah, that's improvement. It's something. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, remember, even when I was trying to, like, olive branch him at the at the at after the, the gentleman I yeah. spoke about earlier, like... I told him, I was like, I understand that you're never going to stop using. Like, I've kind of come to terms with that. You will always be an alcoholic. Um, I just don't want to have phone conversations with you when you're actively drunk. Yeah. If you want to call me right when you get off work, on your drive home, before you've gotten home and cracked open a couple of beers, we could do that. Yeah. I've now, I mean, I've wrapped my head around the fact that you will always drink alcohol. Mm. There we go. Yeah. I just don't want to have a slurring speech conversation with you. So if you want to take, you know, before you've cracked open a beer in the morning, you want to call me, cool. Before you get, you know, before you, after you get off work and before you open your after work beer, cool. That didn't end up happening. But, you know, like they're... But it would have been better. But it, it, it was better. the realization on my end and it was healing to me that, to be like, okay, he's still a person. Ultimately, this is what he's going to do. If you want, I mean, here's the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like watching, you know discussing that stuff about like Dr. Gabor Mate and the stuff that he talks about like I now it's more like what happened like now I wish I could be like what happened why why were you like this because mm-hmm. if you could have if you can fix or identify the root of the issue sometimes that helps too like people just want to acknowledge their their trauma some people want to acknowledge that something happened to them but no one wants to talk about it we don't talk about yeah. what happened yeah we don't well, talk about what your grandfather did all... you know like we just we're like operating systems and most of us have some faulty code in there no, somewhere. For, yeah. And like a ton. <laughs> and so it's like you if you identify that faulty code, even if you can't totally correct it, you can in software terms you create a workaround. Yeah. And like that I mean that is psychology. Like that is psychological health and growing where you're like, "Listen, there's some faulty code in there. The 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 system is not working as it should." I I can't get in there on the back end to rewrite the code, but I can create a workaround. Yeah, we can optimize it for what it is. Yeah, and, like, that was... I used to be a software technician for a large corporation. (laughs) I love always learning about all the other lives you've had. I know. I (laughs) I had someone leave me a negative iTunes review saying, like... Basically saying I was confabulating my life history, being like, (laughs) she says she did this and she did that and did that. And I was like... I just wanted to respond, like... I'm almost 40 and I have ADD, which means I've, beep, I've beep, changed beep, my beep. career 17 million times. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I, I was like, I, maybe they think I'm 23, but like. Yeah, I'm, we're all adults here. Some of uh, us have had some yeah. experiences. I'm, I'm 40 and I am diagnosed with ADD. I, we I, may I, sound like we're 18, but, and look like it. Yeah, but, we definitely But we're like not. It. We're not. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's like, yeah, you need to create those workarounds. Yeah. Um, cause otherwise you're just going to fucking crash the system. Sometimes those workarounds are safe places. Yeah. Here's the workaround. I know you're going to, I know you're going to use, but while you're using, let's keep it safe. Yeah. There's your workaround. And then boom, it does make a difference. It does make people better. It does impact the community and the people. And it's just, 
I just feel like it's really not that hard to treat people like they're human. I really, I mean, I guess I say that now as someone who's worked through Mm -hmm. many years of being taught some people don't get to be treated like they're human, that now I'm over here in my, like, now I'm in my ivory tower being like, just treat people like they're human. It's so easy. But it's it's not not easy. It's not. It's not easy to repeatedly be treated like crap by a group of people who are stereotypes. Like, you know, if someone is on meth or an alcoholic or whatever, there's a stereotype to that person. If you continually or repeatedly exposed to that and it matches the stereotype. And you get annoyed. And you get annoyed and you get that, you know, empathy fatigue. I get it. I totally get it as someone who spent the last 15 years working in healthcare as a first responder who has been scratched at, spit at, cussed at, uh, you know, like I've had a lot of real, and those experiences made me less give a fuck about Mm -hmm. it. Like I'd be like, oh, here we go again. It's you again. Mm -hmm. Like, so I understand that it's, it's easy for me to sit here and be like, oh, it's, it would be way more simple if people would just look at people like they're people. But like, it took me years to realize like that actually makes it easier when I'm nice to somebody. Yeah. And I start off my patient care interaction with, what's your name? What's going on today? Instead of being like, oh my God, okay, what's your name? Why am I here? Like, that, yeah. just, just the tone of voice. You win more flies with honey. Uh-huh. Yeah. I say that, so I tell my EMTs and my other, like, medics, I say that, like, verbatim. Mm-hmm. Like, you can attract more flies with honey than you can with shit. Like, period. And obviously, like, if the starting nice thing or respectful doesn't get me anywhere. I'm really good at using my paramedic voice. But I try not to start with that. And I've, you know, nine times out of ten, if you start the interaction with someone who you know is an addict, like they're a person, it's their whole the whole experience changes. Like, I mean, there's always that one time out of ten where you're, like, they're still just going to push at your buttons and it's fine. But, like, a good chunk of the time, the minute you're like, hey, what's going on? Like, what's, why... What's what happened today? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, they like aren't defensive anymore, and they're not like thinking that I'm coming at them like everyone else in the world who's it's like, not you're not, you're not a person. You, I'm not going to even treat you with the respect of a person. It goes so much further, um, which is kind of to go back to like what we first started talking about. Like, I think that this needs to be implemented in pre-hospital settings and teachings and thoughts because if you start the interaction on the ambulance with someone on the street who is having a bad day and they're actively intoxicated or under the influence or whatever with that respect. And you can carry that to like, you can change their bristle. You can put down their bristled feathers. Then the interaction in the ER is better Then the interaction, you know, when they go home is better. Like that first versus that first line of that 911 responder who's showing up, whether it's an EMT or a firefighter or a police officer, don't get me started on that one either <laughs> or a paramedic, like, Starting a conversation with an addict respectfully goes so far. So far. Well, because you're going to have to do the same steps anyways. Yeah. You're going to have you're to still do gonna know their name. You're still going to have to tell, like, why am I here? What's But the tone of voice of being like, hey, I, even if you, like I said, if I leave the room and I'm like, God, that guy was an asshole. Yeah. That moment when I was interacting with him, I wasn't treating him like I thought he was an asshole. I was like, hey, yeah. tell me what's up. Tell me what's going on. Like, if you have a moment where they genuinely think you give a shit for a second, they kind of, like... It disarms them. They, yeah. And then it's, the interaction is so much better, and, like, I genuinely feel like that is what needs to be... Like, that is... Without me even knowing what harm reduction was, 
until this year, I was already treating, I was already acting in a harm reduction mindset. Mm. I've been acting in a harm reduction mindset for years now without even realizing what I was doing or what it was. And now that I know I can connect it to something and I'm like, oh, this is what this is. This is, I mean, I wasn't taught how to do that. I'm just, you developed like, I'm just it. like such a nice person that like, <laughs> I just did it without being taught about it. Um, but now that I know about it and now that I can be like, Hey, look up this resource, look at harmreduction.com or whatever, like look, find the spots in your area. I know LA is one of the big ringleaders of it all right now, but find resources in your community that, you know, encourage it and get more involved with it. Cause that's, I mean, that's what I'm working on trying to do. Now that I know I'm going to be going to Seattle, you know, one of the things I even put in my biography or whatever, the introduction to the clinic up there was I'm really interested in harm reduction. It's like my first after emergency medicine, it's harm reduction mm. because it's just so intertwined that emergency medicine, whether you're on the ambulance or in a, you know, the whatever other first responder you are or you're in the ER dealing with these people like that harm reduction mindset should just it should just be how we all are but it's not and so it needs to start being it needs to start being utilized it needs to start being granted I was doing that without knowing what it was but now that I know what it is you can even now I'm like this this needs to go into paramedic teachings Mm -hmm. this needs to go into EMT schools this needs to be some part of a fire academy it needs to be part of a law enforcement academy it needs to be in your er nurse training and your whatever like maybe i mean ultimately it should be in all forms of medicine i think but i do feel like that emergency medicine pre-hospital thing is really where you're interacting with them unless you're working at the rehab Mm -hmm. facilities or the psych facilities themselves as well but that like first responder er where they're in crisis because they've overdosed because they're acutely intoxicated because they're having a psychotic episode because you know they assaulted someone or whatever like whatever it is it's that emergency medicine person that first responder who's going to probably be that first buffer line of communication mm-hmm. um i also think like it would treat people like a person like i just it makes me like i feel like i'm just being very repetitive but like Duh, they're people. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Like, I, I, I think that it should be something that is very open, like a community resource. It should be a known thing that yeah. this is available in the same way that we know there's, like, battered women's shelters. We know there's these things. There should be harm reduction facilities and wet houses. There should be places to refer people mm-hmm. for help, and it should be something that we just kind of be- – it becomes social, like, common knowledge. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll say this on the level of, like, a shop owner. When you work I, – I work in restaurants – when you're in a strip mall, you have the same five homeless people that come in and you get to know them and like you develop relationships with them, particularly at my current bar because we're on a a canal bike path and there's tent cities along it. Mm -hmm. So during the, the lockdown when we were running it like a lemonade stand and like working, we were working outside in the, in the parking lot specifically, we really got to know a lot of the people along the canal and like I made sure they had water. I hooked them up with food and like there's one lady who smeared shit all over a bathroom wall, so she's not allowed That in. was me. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. Ma- that was Mallory. <laughs> um, she was testing me. Uh, but, but so, yeah, the shit lady's not allowed in, but, like, I always let them know, like, you can come in, I'll, I'll hook you up with water, whatever. Yeah. Don't like, cause a scene. Don't co- yeah, don't, don't be a weirdo, but I will make sure you've got 
whatever it is whatever you need, at the you need and like you know one of my coworkers ended up adopting one of their dogs because like she was able to get how the lady was able to get housing but she couldn't have a pet so my coworker adopted her dog and like she ultimately ended up losing that housing and she came by and was like I want to let you know I'm not going to try to get my dog back like I know that he, she's better with you and I just want to say thank you for everything that you did and blah 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 yeah. because like yeah so when you if you live in a place surrounded by homeless people, it's you, you get to know them. The business owners get to know them. And if it could be, like... The new thing is, like, places have, like, music blaring to make it so, like, homeless people won't sleep outside and stuff. But also, wouldn't it be great if those shop owners were able to be like, okay, this is, like, bad for business. Let's set them up with this facility that they can live or that can help them out. And then they aren't on it. We're not, instead of using music to blare them away and send them somewhere yeah, be else... Yeah, like, hey... Um, we run a bar in downtown. We know there's a lot of people that come in. We've got all kinds of pamphlets. I know where our nearest, you know, here's our nearest shelter. Here's our nearest wet house. Here's our nearest this. Here's a phone number of someone you can call if you want help. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to tell you you need help if you're comfortable with your, that's fine. But no, like, we care. We've got some resources. And, you know, we see you all the time. We, now we know who you are. I, and I would How fucking love that because I don't know where to send them to get help. And, like, in the same way that when you're in, you're sitting in your doctor's office and you see pamphlets about, like, yeah. test exams or whatever, like, if I had access to, pam- like, if, you know, if there was a organization that went around to businesses and said, here are the resources, you can then, because now I, I'm on the front lines of dealing with these yeah. people, and I can be like, hey, here's a place. Like, it's hot. It's hot. It's hot. Here's, here's, here's our nearest heat. Honestly, like, for your guys' location, it would be nice to just know where your nearest heat relief or shelter yeah. is. Because, like, all I can do is give these people water. I'll make you pamphlets. And I would I'll love make that. that my, maybe I'll make that part of my, like, my med school yes. volunteer stuff. I made harm reduction pamphlets for the bar. I mean, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, like, literally, like, it would be great. Because, like, a glass of water isn't going to help you in 120 degrees. Uh, like, I don't know why Phoenix doesn't have fucking FEMA tents set up with AC because... Because it would be enabling because well, we're most, like, we're we have, recently blue, but we're mostly red state. We they have 2,200 homeless people in Phoenix. Yeah. That's a lot of people out in the heat. Can we fucking, can we put up some tents? Some misters? Some misters, some blowers. Can we fucking do something? Because they're already, there is a tent city. Mm-hmm. It smells like pee. There's people screaming all the time. Mm-hmm. Can we fucking provide some AC so they aren't dying in their tents? Can we fuck? can we do that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that would be, that's the dream. That would be... I, I, it's like it doesn't co- it doesn't cost that much. There's there's so many buildings just chilling in downtown Phoenix right now that aren't even being utilized. Like I don't understand how leaving them empty to get just gross is better than filling them with people and getting them off the street and giving them a safe spot to yeah. try to be human again. Yeah. Hmm. Baby steps. Yeah, that would all work out. Well, Mallory, I'm convinced you're going to change the world. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things I do respect most about you, um, don't blush, uh, is that you are not, like, you don't retreat or you don't ignore things. Like, you're a spicy little meatball. Like, you're a fighter. And so I really appreciate that, like, when you see that there are problems, you're like, okay, how do we fix this? Like, and you do it in your friendships and you do it in your career and you're like, this is unacceptable. What is what is the path towards change? Because we're gonna do that. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna get on the fucking path towards change. And I really do respect that because I think it is very easy to feel defeatist in the face of large scale issues such as addiction and homelessness. Yeah, <laughs> it really can be. I have a couple of classmates that are like, I don't even know 
Especially like the younger ones who haven't had all of the real life exposure to things like I have mm-hmm. my old and my oh well, yeah you have a unique back in my day I do um you know like I one of my classmates that I'm like he's 22 I'm 35 I've obviously had a lot more life than he has um and he's been pretty privileged and when we do some of these you know the harm reduction video we watched in class and some of the conversations that I have with like that teacher that sent me the email that I showed you before we started this um he was dumbfounded like he didn't realize how bad it really is out there on some of these you know in some of these cities and some of these places and how some people are actually living like there were people in my class that didn't realize that didn't know people really lived paycheck to paycheck like there's a lot of yeah it's it's honestly mind-blowing but he started to feel really overwhelmed he's like I'm one person and this needs to change so bad and I don't know like what can I do like mm-hmm. and he kind of I'm assuming must see that in me too. Cause he came to me and was like, what can I do? And I was like, well, neither of us on our own one person scale is going to change everything. You can change the way you interact with people when they're in those situations. You can start to change how you treat those people, mm-hmm. how your interactions are with those people. And then you can try to implore those around you to see it that way too. And then that again, like that little pebble and the water and those ripples you know, like if I, the, if I can tell a couple of people what harm reduction is and maybe give them some insight to stop treating people with medical psychotic and, or psychosis and addiction issues like they're garbage, even if just like one or two people are like, you know what, maybe I should, you know, I'm going to be nice to the next one I see. And that, I mean, that's, it's, that, it's, it's that outreach, like the ripple effect, like it just will... Bloop, 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 and it'll bloop. build faith in those people if they feel like, oh, doctors care about me, yeah. doctors trust me, pe- people care about me. They'll come back for continuing care. Yep. And then you, you know, form that relationship and then you inspire those, like, ultimately you've got to just find a way to be mm-hmm. the pebble and, like, whatever position you're in, you find that water, body of water that you know needs something and you go bloop. And yeah. And you hope that those ripples keep going. Yeah, I think in the same way, you know how in cities where police have contentious relationships with the citizens, which is most cities now, Mm -hmm. they always have like days where it's like barbecue and it's like, come, there's like, you know, a a DJ and they're barbecuing and it's like an opportunity for police to just hang out with Mm -hmm. the citizens in their neighborhoods. And that's why there are people who are pushing to make it a law that police have to come from the zip code in which they're enforcing the laws just so they know Mm -hmm. the community. But anyways, they, they throw these events, these community events for police to mingle with citizens so that citizens can build a relationship and trust with the police. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in a lot of cities, people are like, you don't call the cops. Yeah. They'll shoot you. <laughs> I'm a first responder, and I still have my doubts about calling the yeah. Phoenix Police Department in a lot of situations, which is not a not great, great thing to say about no. the city you live in. It's not great. But, um, but yeah, it's building that bridge between the medical community and the addict community mm-hmm. where it goes, oh, th- no, this is a safe space. Doctors yeah. care about you. We care whether you live or die. We care whether or not you get AIDS. Yeah. Like, we, ca- and we fucking care. And yeah. building that relationship instead of them feeling marginalized and outside of medical help, which is why, you know, aside from poverty, they don't end up in the yeah. ER with abscesses yeah. until it's, it's until, amputation until it's, time. Yeah, until it's, they're septic and they're dying. Yeah, if they, if they felt comfortable in the medical community and they could come in and be mm-hmm. like, hey, I've got this, like, blister and it hurts, and then you can get them antibiotics before, yeah, before they're dying of sepsis. Yeah. 
So it's, yeah, it's, it's creating that bridge. That's the bridges and the ripples. And all I can do is hope that I can make the people, the ripples around yeah. me somehow a little better, even if I can't fix the whole pond. I have faith in you. That felt really, like, that felt like a really deep statement. I liked that. It was right. really good. Thank you. In my experience, it takes about an hour or two of talking to a mic, and then you <laughs> are able to sum up your thoughts in one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. That was my profound moment at the end of this. Um, well, do you want to tell everyone to have a happy hump day? Oh, is it? Well, it comes out on oh, Wednesday. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, we, is we, it hump day? We no, end it... every episode with telling every oh, people to have well, a happy then, hump yes. day. Oh, well, then yes. Have the bestest of hump days. <laughs> Bye. Bye.